Hello and welcome to Michigan and Other Mayhem, the show about Michigan, murder, mysteries, histories, and other mayhem from around the world. Your hosts are Allie and Jen. Okay, Jen, let's do this thing. Allie? Jen, are you there? Allie. Yeah, I'm here. Yes. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Holy moly. So are you at the lake house right now? <laughs> Yeah, and I have the phone outside, my cord running through the door, I'm sitting on the floor. (laughs) (laughs) I thought, oh, I could record outside, and then I thought, no, these people will think I'm weirder than I already am. (laughs) Well, I I always think about the, okay, so I record in our spare room, and I always wonder about the neighbor on the other side of the wall, and all the shit they hear me saying. Yeah, they're probably only catching, like, murder, him. Right? And every now and then my uncomfortable laugh, because I laugh when we talk about murder because I'm not comfortable. And, okay, and I was talking to the fic that someone was talking the other day about people who laugh when they're uncomfortable. Like, oh, that's disrespectful. And I was like, I do that. I laugh when I'm uncomfortable. It's just like a nervous reaction. You know what I mean? You just laugh when something comes up and you're not comfortable talking about it. You just laugh. It's not that you find it funny. And they were like, blah, 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 you know. And I was just like, whatever. It's, I'm obvious. It's not a comfortable laugh, motherfucker. I don't sound joyous. Right. <laughs> I laughed literally at my own father's funeral at one point when I was uncomfortable. <laughs> Truly. Uh, I was like, I laughed and then I was like, oh, I'm going to pay people, for that one. <laughs> yeah, people do that. Yeah, I really do laugh. When I'm uncomfortable. Like I talk about when your brother had a vasectomy and it, it looked terrible and even the even the nurse was like oh my god that's a lot of bruising and I laughed and someone's like why do you think it's funny I'm like I don't think it's funny I'm uncomfortable that my husband's entire nutsack is purple okay <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. so I laugh because I don't know what else to do okay what do you want me to do <laughs> cry right. I'm holding frozen peas up to it what do you want me to do well <laughs> 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 uh-huh. <laughs> what are you going to talk about today I'm going to talk about the murder of Stacy Chahorsky, C-H-A-H-O-R-S-K-I. Okay. What are you talking about? I'm going to do cases that were solved without DNA. Oh. Yeah, no DNA involved, but cases solved. I've got two stories, actually. One about a woman who is, um, whose sisters report her missing and another about um, a murder that was solved without DNA. Well, pretty sure it's solved, but I'll let you know. <laughs> okay. You want to go first? You want me to? I think I went first lately, so you go ahead and go first. Okay. December 16th, 1988, a woman's body was found on the embankment of Interstate 59 in Rising Farm, Georgia which is about 30 minutes or so from Chattanooga, Tennessee. Okay. During the investigation, they believe the woman was not killed there. And there was no identification. They estimated her at about 25 to 35 years old. Wow. DNA was collected, but no matches were found and no missing persons reported matched the woman's description so the case went cold and over the years the case would be revisited in 2000 they sent dna to the fbi no match in 2015 they did a clay rendering of the woman 
still no solid leads. On March 24th, 2022, I'm yeah. so proud of them for still going. You know what I mean? Right. And oh, for trying absolutely. different things. You know, they tried this, they tried that, they try a bigger search, they try a clay bust. You know what I mean? Yeah. And they went even further. Okay. So on March 24, 2022, the mystery of who the woman was would be solved. The woman was Stacy from North Shores, Michigan. Based on MLive News reports, Stacy was reported missing in 1988 at the age of 18. Oh. So I thought that was interesting that they they thought she was 25 to 35. I I couldn't figure it out. But (laughs) if it was... If it was closer to now, yeah. I would say I I can see where they could get it wrong because I just think kids nowadays look a lot older. I think yeah, I feel like she, when I was younger, I looked 18. Right. Maybe it was that uh, it could be one. Maybe she led a hard life because sometimes people do look older when life's been a little rough. Or maybe there was like some decomp- decomposition and they because what, what year was she found in the 80s? Yeah, 88. Oh, the year she went missing. Oh, okay. So, yeah, I was going to say, also, it's, yeah, it's 1988. They don't have the good forensics we have right now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, she went on a cross-country road trip. The last time she was heard from was in September 1988, when she called her mother. Stacy told her she would, had plans to travel from North Carolina to Flint, Michigan, and then from there to Muskegon County. Stacy's mom would report her missing to the police in January 1989. The case would go cold, of course, and North Shore police would revisit the case based on Polish News Report station. Police collected DNA from Stacy's family in 2010. Working with the FBI, they found no matches. And a few years later, they turned to a private lab who specialized in helping identify remains. Oh, my gosh. And that's what would lead to solving the question of who she was. And now the police have turned their investigation and put efforts into finding who murdered her. Honestly, this is the most I think I've ever called in all the times that we've done this, which is over 100 times of to both the police and the family putting in all this effort trying to find their lost, you know, family member. Like, wow, that's, they've done a lot. Yeah. And I was interested if Stacy's mom was still alive and I did finally find, took me a while, but I did finally find a news article that said that the police had reached out to her and let her know. So she's alive. Okay. Yeah. And I also read um, in a Georgia Law News article, about at the same time they identified Stacy, they identified another woman who they confirmed was the victim of Samuel Little. So uh, this, this woman was found, I believe, in the same town. I don't know if it was in the same spot, but... But like the same general area. Yeah. And so they confirmed that she was the victim of Samuel Little, 
which was a serial killer who confessed to murdering 93 women between the 70s and 2005. Yeah, that means terrifying. Yeah, which 60 of those of the 93 have been confirmed he was involved in. He killed across 19 states, which in my mind, he could be a suspect in Stacy's murder, but I couldn't find any news reports talking about that. Yeah, as I say, he um, drove a truck. And would kill women. He's the one that in prison would draw pictures and had would yeah show photos that he had of the women. That's how they were able to confirm a lot of shit. He would make he makes well he's dead now. He died recently, but he would um, paint paintings of them, of the women that he murdered. He's disgusting. Absolutely. All right, hit me with what you got. Okay, I have um, got my information from Newsweek, Fox Fifty Nine, LawandCrime.com. And KRCRTV.com. So it starts with the first one I look into is Marilyn McMichael. And she was a citizen of New York City in the state of New York. And she lived in South the South Jamaican um, houses in Queens. She was 54 years old in 2020. The building was owned by the New York City Housing um, Authority. And Marilyn lived on the seventh floor. So let me just explain this because it comes up later. So Marilyn grew up in the foster system. And she, uh, and when she was a teenager, so she lived in a foster home with two parents. Now they did not adopt her, so they're not her adoptive parents, but they're her foster parents. She eventually ages out of the system. And in that foster home, she was raised with four sisters, two of them being Simone Best Jones and Shamar McElrath. Now, Marilyn had grown up with the, the four girls in the home And they all age out of the system. They're not adopted. They are not legally bound to each other and they're not blood relatives. Okay, I'm just making sure because this really plays into later when they go to look for them. The police are like, you guys are not actually related. So according to the two sisters, Marilyn had a history of what they referred to as emotional problems. And in June of 2020, Marilyn's sisters said that they had talked to her and she expressed that she wanted to go to the hospital. And her sisters believed her to be manic because... When they said emotional problems, she's bipolar is what they're trying to say. And they explained to her that due to the pandemic, it's really hard to go to the hospital, you know, be part of hospital intake. So later on, Simone and Shamar would go to Marilyn's apartment door after their phone conversation and they knock, but she doesn't answer. And this wasn't abnormal behavior for Marilyn. She is, you know, her sisters claim that she's gone years without contact with them before, but they are kind of worried because she said she wasn't feeling well. And even though she sounded healthy, they're worried. Mm-hmm. So time continues. Another year goes by. And now they're really concerned about Marilyn. It's like, okay, it's been a year. So January 26, 2022, the sisters file a missing persons report for Marilyn McMichael. They had called 911 and they were later met with an employee at the housing authority. And the housing employee was able to determine that Marilyn had not paid rent in a year. Okay. But the pandemic's going on, so they're not doing the rent thing. And at first, the police told the sisters that they could not file a missing person report on Maryland because they were not legally adopted together and they were not next of kin. That's ridiculous. Isn't that fucking ridiculous? Like, you don't have to be related to someone to know that they're missing. Yeah, what happens if you don't have anyone? Exactly. That's the craziest thing I ever heard. So Simone and Shamar, they're told that their parents were listed as the emergency contacts, right? So then the sisters explain that their parents have been dead for 20 years. And nobody's going to be filing paperwork on Maryland's behalf if it's not them. 
So at one point, they do get an officer to meet them at the housing unit. And Shamar and Simone heard them, heard him complaining about having to be on a, quote, stupid call, end quote, to come look for the sister. The housing employee and the officer went to Marilyn's apartment, but their key didn't work and she didn't answer the door. So they were like, sorry, they just gave up and left. So now the sisters don't know what to do, right? They don't have any other form of recourse. They don't know how to check on Marilyn. I just want to let you know that if that was you, I'd just bust in. I honestly would have tried to kick the door in. Like they would have to come and get me for breaking and entering. Especially if you'd been gone for a year and you hadn't paid rent for a year, I would know something was wrong. You know what I mean? Right. So what happened to Marilyn became unsolved. It remained unsolved until April 26, 2022. And that's when construction workers had set up scaffolding outside Marilyn's building to do some work. Marilyn's curtains had been drawn back and they were able to see her skeletonized body lying on her bed. And the medical examiner said it would be, take like four to six months for Marilyn's autopsy to be complete. And the cause of death can't be determined until then. And they think that the rent pause during the pandemic helped keep Marilyn's death like an unknown secret as the late rent wasn't being actively pursued. Because I feel like normally someone would have probably broken in and evicted her. <laughs> but, but yeah, she was found by construction workers. Wow. I feel so bad for the sisters who really tried everything to, you know, get their, you know, to get to their sister. And at one point there was literally nothing they can do to find her, even though they knew that she was, you know, signs point to trouble. Yeah. Yeah. So now I'm going to tell you about, well, lightly worse one. This involves murder, but it is considered, I would consider it solved. We'll see. And this have, it came. Okay. So Frank McAllister, he was 19 years old in 1993. And he was living in Redding, California with his girlfriend, Donnell Tate. And Frank was his mother's only child. He had recently been in a car accident and he received this payout of close to like $5,000, which in 1993 is good money, let me tell you. So <laughs> it was. One night after the payout, Frank borrows Donnell's car and he leaves the apartment. So Donnell called the police May 7th, 1993, the next day to report Frank and her car missing. Her car was discovered that day after the report was filed, but Frank was not. Now, Donnell's car was found abandoned in the Costco parking lot in Redding, California. It had a large amount of blood on both the interior and the exterior of the vehicle. And police looked into who were the last people to be seen with Frank. Frank had been seen with Brian Hawkins, who was 19 at the time, and a brother and sister. Shanna Culver was 17 years old in 1993, and her brother, Curtis Culver, was 21 years old. When investigators interviewed the three people, they claimed that Frank had given them a ride, and he dropped them off at Waterwork Parks. Frank then drove off, and they never saw him again. And without any further information, the case goes cold. April 13, 1994, a hiker found skeletal remains near Grace Lake, and they were determined to be Frank's. And an autopsy reveals that his throat had been cut. But still, after that, no further progress on who might have done it. 25 years later, in early of 2018, Brian Hawkins contacted a California-based affiliate of ABC for an interview. He would confess to the murder of Frank McAllister a quarter century earlier on live TV. So Brian explained, quote, I'm going to turn myself in next door at the sheriff's department for a crime I was involved in years ago, end quote. So Brian explained that his religion faith, his religious faith 
and sense of guilt pushed him to confess. So he believes that confessing to the murder is the closest thing to right that he can do now that the murder has occurred. And in his confession, Brian implicated siblings, Shanna and Curtis Culver. So according <laughs> to testimony, the three of them heard that Frank had a lot of money and that he was looking to buy a large quantity of meth so that he could turn it around and sell it for a profit. Now, Brian, the original confessor, said that they were going to take Frank to Shingletown for a pickup when Shanna brought up murdering Frank and taking his money. Now, he didn't believe her initially, even when Shanna showed Brian that she was carrying a knife. So Brian thought she might try to stab him if they robbed him, but just not kill him. He didn't think that killing was on the table. The four of them pulled over and talked for a few hours, and then they attack him. So Shanna gives the knife to Brian, but it's ultimately Curtis who stabbed Frank first with a different knife when they sat in the car. Curtis stabbed Frank in the neck while they were while he was sitting in the driver's seat. Frank gets out of the car, he walks a few feet, and then he goes down on his back. And it's then that Brian straddles Frank and he repeatedly stabs him in the neck with the knife that Shanna gave him. Shanna and Curtis stood there until Brian stopped. And when Brian did stop, he believed that Frank was dead. But Curtis still pulls Frank's body across the ground and in front of the car where he drops a large rock on his head. <sighs> I know. It is just so terrible. And I feel like, you know, Frank didn't do anything. You know what I mean? Right. The three murderers then climbed into Frank's car with Brian at the wheel and they drive off. They left the car in a cost the Costco parking lot would later be found. And the three of them then took a taxi cab back to Curtis's apartment. So Curtis and Shanna um, had taken the money off of Frank. And when they gave several hundred dollar bills of that to Brian, there was blood on the money. And during the interview, Brian was like often emotionally upset over the murder. He was shaking and crying at times and he does turn himself in immediately. When investigators follow up with Curtis and Shanna, their stories mostly matched. So Curtis claims that he was the one, he was not the one to initially stab Frank. Curtis said that he, that Frank started acting up in the car and that he held the knife out to Frank in fear and that Brian pushed Frank's neck forward onto the blade. Mm. Yeah. yeah, he was just holding it out. It was Frank that, that did it. Um, yeah, he, uh, Brian pushed Frank's neck. Yeah. So Curtis said okay. though, he dropped the rock on Frank's head as a mercy killing, just in case he wasn't already dead. He didn't want Frank to suffer. He also claimed that it was Brian who took the money and divvied it up. Now, Shanna, she confesses to nothing. She is keeping to the original story, which is the three of them were dropped off by Frank, and then he was murdered by somebody else. And due to Shanna being 17 at the time of the murder, her case is being processed by the juvenile court system. So right now, Curtis Culver is facing up to 35 years in prison, with Shanna Culver being eligible to serve 20 years in prison, and Brian Hawkins is looking up to 25 years in prison, and they should each be sentenced sometime in 2022. Wow. I know. Isn't that crazy? That I didn't. Gone unsolved, if not for Brian Hawkins' guilt. Right. I didn't realize that. Years later, if you did a crime when you were underage, that you still go through that part of the court. The juvenile court system? I know. But I thought this, they must be used to this. It must, you know, this, this can't be the first time someone, you know, you did something as a kid and an adult and you get caught as an adult. You know what I mean? Right. I would, it, I would I just, just, we think it's weird because we don't really see it, but I, I'm sure it, 
You know what I mean? Yeah, it's and it's interesting that, you know, okay, you got two people here telling the story. Their stories are similar. And then yeah, you're yeah, just gonna go, nope. I know. <laughs> <laughs> They're both wrong. Yeah. I don't uh, know if talking about this now, what happened? Yeah. And mm-hmm. actually for my next one, I'm gonna tell you about um Another case solved. It's actually without DNA. It was a kidnapping and most likely a murder case that these guys get together decades later to solve their friend's kidnapping. And I'm swooping in with the Dearborn Heights, Michigan serial killer. Oh, okay. Okay. All right. Well, I will talk to you later. All right. All right. You have a good one. You too. Bye. Bye.